0: Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Batia Ungar-Sardon deputy editor of Newsweek. Uh, she was at The Forward before that, and she has written in The New York Times, The Washington Post, other newspapers, appeared often on national news programs. Her experience has helped her to produce a new book entitled Bad News, How Woke Media Are Undermining Democracy, our topic today. Welcome, Ms. Ungar Sodan.
1: Thank you so so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here with you and uh, to be given the opportunity to speak to your audience.
0: Well, great. Well, now you you assert straight off that much of media wokeness today originated in a far place from the newsroom, specifically in the ethnic studies and sociology, social science departments in academia. Uh, This is a big question, but how did this migration happen? (laughs)
1: Yes, that's a great question. Um, So I think probably a lot of your listeners will recognize the description, right? A lot of us have noticed over the last five, six, 10 years, the introduction of, you know, quote unquote, woke terms into the news with just exponential frequency words like oppression and marginalization and, you know, marginalization associated with words like people of color and you know white privilege and you don't actually have to rely on your own intuition or anecdotal evidence because sociologists have been tracking this migration as well and what they found was around 2011-2012 an absolute skyrocketing of these very academic radical ideas about race and they have tied it to a shift in white liberal opinion that took place around 2015, so a little bit after the start of the use of these words in, in journalism, to where white liberals now are more extreme in their views on race than Black and Latino Americans, right? And that, that's a feedback loop there, okay? So what you saw was journalists and journalism, as it went digital, it started to use words about race and gender that comes straight out of the academy, straight out of academia with exponential frequently. And then there was a huge shift as a result in white liberal opinion about these issues. So why did this happen? I argue that this is a lot less about race or even politics or po- political polarization, and it's about class. The The mainstreaming of a woke moral panic in today's media outlets is not about race. It's actually about the fact that journalists underwent a status revolution over the course of the 20th century. The beginning of the century, journalism was a blue collar trademark. It was a job that you picked up while you were doing it. Less than half of the elite journalists in 1937 had a college degree. Fast forward to today, and 92% of journalists have a college degree compared to just 36% of Americans. And they're not just more highly educated, they're more affluent, they're more coastal. They, they, 75% of journalists don't just live in blue districts and blue states. They live in the most blue districts and the most blue states. They are much less religious than their fellow Americans. They're much more pro-choice. So what we saw was really a status revolution to where journalism became one of the most highly educated industries in America. Journalists themselves became part of the top 10%, which meant that when the New York Times is hiring, they can afford to do what they do do, which is choose their interns from the top 1% of universities. Hmm. And what happens when you do that is you tend to get a very, very highly educated but educated in a very specific way right harvard educated princeton educated you know educated in a way that um reflects the academy of today which is very much um under the sway of very very radical views about race and gender that do not reflect where most americans are at that do not reflect where people of color are at you know how they see themselves in their communities and their issues and i think that's really what happened was You know, these views that come straight from the academy were mainstreamed through the liberal media as a generational shift took place among the class of journalists to where journalists were increasingly from these highly elite institutions, and of course there are you know we can 't ignore the business incentives here so so digital media plays a huge role here, right journalists don 't work for themselves, and this sort of the great awakening would not have taken place if it wasn't making big bucks for for, for some of our biggest uh, media legacy institutions
0: yeah you, you know I, I have to say that as I was reading the book, you compile uh, abundant copious examples of wokeness in The media and how often disengaged from reality that wokeness is, but how closely it tallies what academic theory has been pushing for for a few decades now. But one of the great values of the book is that you dig into the past. So you do bring up issues such as the the old numbers on journalists with four-year college degrees. I think that that is indeed a, a singles out this book. This is not just a current events book. It really does try to analyze the phenomenon, to dig deeper into it. For instance, one of the crucial periods of this transformation of journalism into, as you put it, a profession of astonishing privilege was in the early 60s, particularly during JFK's presidency. What do you say in the book about how the transformation, really, that was a key moment when journalism went from sort of working class background or or just ordinary middle class background to uh, heading into an an Ivy League, you know, elite status profession.
1: Yeah, so uh, first of all, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say, and it really means a lot to me. Um, This book is not a book that's written from the headlines, I really start in the 19th century in the sort of golden age of American journalism to where it was really a, a populist endeavor by the people, for the people, some, you know to, to really chronicle what we've lost. You know what happened in the 70s was um, <laughs> before that, you really had um, you know you would have someone like JFK who would work on the Harvard Crimson when he was at Harvard but he would never have dreamed of becoming a journalist, right? It was was a low-status job. It was not a job that had a lot of glory associated with it. You know, it involved um, driving people crazy. It involved getting yelled at by people in power. And that was just not something that, like, young elites who saw themselves as on a meritocratic rise, you know, how they pictured themselves, right? All that started to shift around the Watergate era. Basically, what you had was a movie portraying uh, journalists, as you know, two sexpots, right, who showed up on the scene and were able to bring down the most unpopular president that most Americans could ever remember Robert and Redford. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And that sort of that film really created a sense of glamour around the industry. And it really sort of started to make people of these elites, people who were college educated who would have worked on the Harvard Crimson before and then gone on to politics or to law or to some other high status Job, really start to think of journalism as a career that can confer fame and status and glamour and glory. And, and it really you really started to see a shift around that time to where a more highly educated, elite clientele started to apply to the job. They started to demand more money that started to attract an even higher you know, status clientele to, to start becoming journalists and, and so on and so forth, to where today you have a situation where you know to become a journalist you essentially have to come from money you have to to, to make the connections you need you have to pay $70,000 to get a useless co- you know graduate degree that doesn't <laughs> right. actually teach you anything that you can use as a journalist you have to be able to work on a starting salary of $35,000 in the most expensive cities in America like New York and San Francisco and Washington DC which are the yeah. only places left that really have journalism jobs so who can afford to work for $35,000 a year living in New York it's kids who come from money, people whose parents have, um, you know, are able to support them and, and give them that help as they make their way. Obviously, there are exceptions to this rule, but the exceptions truly do prove the rule rather than the other way around. There's just been a, ma- you know, a, a mass deplatforming of, of, of working class people, of their opinions, of their journalism, of their concerns. You know, because, of course, when journalists became part of the top 10 percent, that's who they started writing about and that's who they started writing for. And I think that that's just another thing that I think a lot of people have noticed. You know, it used to be that you would have all of these distinct outlets and each one was catering to a different audience, different kind of audience. Right. Now you see, you know, The Washington Post and The New York Times and The Atlantic and Vox and CNN and MSNBC. And they're all catering to the same six, seven, eight million affluent, highly educated Americans who consider themselves progressives. I mean, that that, that, that uniformity comes from the fact that there is a total uniformity in who becomes journalists as well as, again, the digital pressures of digital media, where we just know so much about who our readers are in digital media that you can really cater the content and the message to just getting those people who live in, you know, gated communities who want to believe that everybody who votes for a different party is deeply racist, right, because it flatters their vanity to think so. And so that's really what you're seeing and what I talk about in the book, how, you know, under the guise of social justice, you know, you see just the mass deplatforming of the concerns of working-class Americans of all races, of all races. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I want to get into more of the historical background that you go into. For instance, the, the innovations of Benjamin Day. But, but yeah. one quick side question uh, Batia, you. You're, you're young. You're not old. And <laughs> what, maybe just, just autobiographically, do you think prompted you to dissent from this achievement track and uh, pleasing one's superiors and playing along with the elite worlds uh, that you're you're willing to criticize this whole trend? Anything anything <laughs> that you would you would single out other than other than you just you just you just want to annoy people? Are, are, are you just obnoxious? Is that it?
1: Well, first of all, according to AOC, I am old because only old people use the word woke, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, so that's you know, great. I'm happy to stand with the old. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't mind being kicked out of the cool girls club. Um, uh, what is it about my biography? Honestly, this isn't the book I initially set out to write. Um, I wanted to write a book about how Americans are much more united than we think about the the you know the the values that this great nation was founded on. And I couldn't sell it. I I I couldn't get any, you know, I kept being told by editor after editor, there's no market for this book. Like, nobody wants to hear that we're not really polarized. No one wants to hear that polarization is an elite phenomenon that benefits the elites. And, you know, finally a very kind editor sat me down and she said, well, you're telling me we're, we're much more united than divides us. Like, why don't I know that? Why am I so sure that we're so polarized? Maybe you should write that book. And and I think that that is the book that I eventually wrote. I, I wrote this book because I got so of the sneering and smearing of working-class Americans, of the people who had lost by every measure Hmm. to to the same, you know, by every measure that the people doing the sneering had won. You know, the the economy is working really, really well for people in knowledge industry jobs with an elite education, and it's working really, really poorly for the working class and even the downwardly mobile middle class. And I started hearing and reading about these deaths of despair and then I would turn on CNN and every day there would be a millionaire on CNN sneering at these people, you know, who had who, who were killing themselves because they couldn't see a role for themselves in, in America. They couldn't see a, a place for themselves in this country. And I, that really started to upset me the, the bullying um, and then the but under the guise of social justice, you know, under the yeah. guise of, you know, with the whiff of moral superiority I just couldn't stand that and I mean as far as autobiographical, I don't know I mean I'm religious I, I'm sure that that has something to do with it um, but but I, I think that that really the, the, it's really it's a, it, my patriotism, you know this is such a great nation and we're finally finally coming close to where we we're, we're realizing the promise that was there from the beginning and instead of sort of um, acknowledging that instead of the left acknowledging all of the cultural, fronts and battles that it had won, it sort of moved the goalposts and flipped the script and started calling these achievements themselves some sort of, you know, calling them racism, right? The fact that most Americans now want to live in a race, race-blind society. Now that's, that's you know what I mean? They flipped yeah. the thing. And, and uh, I have a PhD, so I recognized instantly that this was the kind of malarkey that could only come out of the university. Forgive me, I know that you're a yeah. professor, but... <laughs> So I thought, you know what, I should, I should talk about this from my experience, from what I can see from, from where I've been.
0: Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Let's go back to to what I mentioned, Benjamin Day. Uh, The innovations that he, who who, who was he and what did he do?
1: Benjamin Day was the son of a farmer. uh, not a very good farmer, somebody who was, you know, living very much on the margins, uh, you know, in poverty. He grew up in poverty. And at 14, his father pulled him out of school and apprenticed him to a printer, which was not unusual at the time, but he was certainly not an educated man. And he was very proud of that. He was proud of, you know, that he had sort of come to his views from existing in the world. So he showed up in New York City in 1832, And he, you know, has no trouble finding work because there are newspapers at the time. There are a lot of them. But what he noticed was that all of the newspapers were catering to the elites. They were catering either to the economic elites. You know, you had the financial papers that were sort of for the business elites. And then you had the political papers that were for the political elites. And there was no paper that was speaking to everyday Americans, working class Americans, to the poor. But he also knew something about them. That made him um, want to create a newspaper for them, which was that he he realized because from living in a working class neighborhood, that working class Americans were incredibly literate. In fact, America was the first country in the world where, you know, if you stopped a stranger in the street, you could be reasonably certain that they could read. It was just a very, very literate society, including the poor. And he, he also noticed something else, which was that. There were so many poor people, and there were so many working-class people, and they were reading things. They were reading, you know, gallows humors, and they were reading romances and religious tracts. They just didn't have a newspaper. And he created what, what we now call the penny presses, you know, the, the papers for the elites. They cost about $10 for a yearly subscription. Uh, which is twice what a domestic servant would make a month, right? You know, she's not going to buy a, a subscription, and you couldn't buy them on the street. They weren't available for sale on a daily basis. And Benjamin Day decided he was going to make a newspaper that cost one penny a day, and he was going to sell it to, you know, the masses, basically. And in order to do that, because in order to get somebody who only has two pennies to part with one of them, you have to create something that is of interest to them. And so and he, he picked this up immediately. He sent um, this, this reporter, George Wisner, to go sit in the daybreak court and take down the stories of the people the police had rounded up overnight. Essentially, he was gossiping about the poor and the working classes, and he got rich off of it. They just loved that paper. I mean, he really <laughs> figured out that you sort of give somebody dignity in saying to them, I, you're not my charity case you're my customer. I have something that's worth one of the just two pennies that you own right now. Um, And and so he created the Penny Press. His paper was called The Sun, because like the sun, the sun shines for everybody, rich and poor, and that's who his paper was for. Hmm. And he took up the causes of the working class as a crusade. You know, he he really he would print their, you know, the union manifestos in full. He would advocate for shorter hours and better pay. Um, And it was a real revolution which was picked up then um, in the second generation by Joseph Pulitzer, one of you know, the greatest American journalists of all time, who really picked that up and, and ran with it. You know, he, he, everything he did, every decision he made for his paper, The World, which was the number one you know, newspaper in the world being printed at the time, he was thinking to himself, who is my reader? My reader is a working class person. He had this saying, nothing is worth printing that is not sure to be read by the masses. And you know this is this is really interesting. These guys their papers were very partisan. They were not what we would call quote unquote objective. Pulitzer very much insisted on the fact and accuracy, except for that sort of you know the the a little bit he veered away from that um uh with the, with the yellow press, but before that yeah. he was very insistent on accuracy. And but but he was very much on the side of the poor. He was very much a partisan for the poor and the working classes. And you know what I say about our 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 news industry today is that you know partisan press is not a problem as long as every sector of society has a press that's partisan on its behalf. Mm -hmm. The problem with our press today is the same problem with our politics today, which is that you know we have what passes for a debate what passes for a political debate but but, but actually you know you have one side catering to the top 10 percent of liberals and the other side catering to the top five percent conservatives and nobody who's catering you know to the masses nobody is speaking to the bottom 90 percent and i think that's the real problem like there's no problem in having a point of view in your journalism as long as everybody has someone who's advocating for them and today we really have the reverse you have people with enormous amounts of privilege, enormous amounts of power, enormous amounts of money, asking everyday Americans to represent them, right, to be, to be their foot soldiers on a cultural battle that benefits the elites of both sides. And I think that's really something that I tried to get across in the book. Yeah,
0: I think you do. Uh, another figure in your history is Adolf Ox. Who was he and, and how does he figure you know, <laughs>
1: Ox was also um, not from an affluent background. He became a newspaper man also very, very early. But what he realized was, so he came up um, just before Pulitzer and around the same time that Pulitzer was, um, um, you know, really succeeding at the, at the world, um, Ox bought the New York Times. And what he realized was, you know, he was not going to be able to compete with Pulitzer for numbers, right? Pulitzer just had a lock on that working class audience. What Ox realized was that if he could convince advertisers that his clientele was affluent or aspirational, right, was socially climbing, if he could convince an advertiser that he had an exclusive readership, he could charge more for ads. And the reason for that is, if you think about it, think about you know, an ad, a typical ad that runs in you know, the New York Times or the New Yorker for let's say a $10,000 watch, right? If you run that ad in a newspaper where only 5% of your readers are ever gonna be able to even dream about affording a $10,000 watch, that ad is gonna be worth a lot less then if you run that ad in a magazine or a newspaper where 90% of the readers are in the market for a $10,000 watch, right? Because then suddenly that ad is not, the, the money's not being wasted on the eyeballs of people who this is, you know, stratospherically out of their, um, you know, out of their consideration, right? That, that's the model that the New York Times really came up on, that they, if they could convince advertisers that their readership was more exclusive by creating content articles that signaled to working class readers that we are not for you, we are for the elites and for the aspirational, then they could make a, a business model out of that. And that's exactly what they did. And you're really seeing that today. It's so funny because at the time what that meant was no special pleading, you know, very down the middle of the road because aspirational Americans at the time thought it was very parochial to be on one side or the other, right? They wanted to get their news straight down the middle. Today what you see with the New York Times is it's still catering to elites, right? But what the elites want today is to be very, very exercised, right? They want to feel things very deeply. They want to be very emotionally engaged with the news, hmm. which is why the New York Times you know, in, in 2017 ran the word Trump 97,000 times. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's not middle-of-the-road reporting. That's reporting designed to make affluent, white, liberal elites feel their emotions very, very deeply and therefore stay on the page longer and therefore click on an ad.
0: Y- you note know that now 91% of New York Times readers are Democrats. Now, if you're, if you're an editor or business manager of the New York Times, do you say to yourself, look, this is, this is our audience, we're stuck with that now. If, if we tried to be more modulated on things, if we, if we got a little less partisan, we would lose a lot of our own readership. I mean, does does audience now, since it's been so emotionally conditioned, does it now have sort of a feedback effect? We gotta go with this now. We can't change.
1: So it's um it it absolutely does, but I want to stress that that was a very conscious decision. It's it doesn't naturally happen that 91% of your readers become Democrats, right? That that's the result of very intentional programming. You know, as you noted, I'm not that old, but I can remember a New York Times where Republicans could read it and not be insulted, right, and not feel themselves that every single sentence and every single paragraph had some sort of insult or was, you know, was contemptuous of them, you know, had disgust for them, right. That, that tone that, that came about, you know, just before the Trump era and really, really like it's impossible to be a Republican and to read about Trump in the New York times and, and not feel deeply insulted. I mean, no. it's, that, that, that was very intentional and it happened around 2014 because so um A.G. Salzberger is the current publisher. Before he became the publisher in 2014, he created a sort of uh, roadmap for how the New York Times was going to take advantage of digital media and succeed financially. And it was, uh, it was called the Innovation Report, and it was leaked to, to reporters, so we know what was in it. And it is literally a roadmap for a new DNA for the New York Times. So the first thing he said he wanted to see was he wanted the Chinese wall separating the business concerns of journalism, audience development, that kind of thing, um, from editorial—that—that—that that, that had always been a sort of sacred Chinese wall, right? Journalists were supposed to write, you know, without fear or favor, right? Independent of of, um, yeah. of business concerns, and then you had the business people who would take whatever was being produced by editorial from a journal, you know, from that journalistic point of view, and use that in order to get readers. And what he wanted to do was bring down that wall. You know, he wrote in the innovation report. Uh, it is the job of the newsroom to grow the audience, right? So he wanted the journalists themselves to be very invested in how to get more readers, but of course not more readers across the spectrum, right? More of the right kind of readers. The second thing he said he wanted to see was he wanted to see individual journalists becoming social media stars. I mean, he, he you know, there's this very funny line in the Innovation Report where he writes with horror about a journalist who didn't tweet his story for two whole days, right? He wanted to see... What ended up happening, which is individual reporters at the New York Times becoming social media stars with, you know, 250,000, 500,000 followers on Twitter. But what ended up happening was they got so much power out there on social media that they were able to then use that power to force A.G. Solzberger into making personnel decisions that they wanted, right, into firing people because they had been offended by these people. So he sort of created this monster um, in, an, in an effort to court the right digital um, readership. Now, the problem is, is that, you know, it's been incredibly financially successful. And like you say, it creates this feedback loop. So those decisions, right, to have, to have individual journalists have to think about readers and what the readers want. He wanted there to be, quote unquote, a two-way street between readers and writers, right? That was an intentional decision that the New York Times made to empower the readers to demand a certain kind of reporting, right? And, and that, that's how you end up with 91% as, uh, you know, of Democrats, right? When you empower the readers to tell you what direction the newsroom should go in. Now you might say, wait, this is just the democratization of the news, right? It used to be that the journalists had all the power and now it's you know, shared with the readers. But it's really not the case because the readers that the New York Times has empowered to speak back to them are completely made up of elites, right? It's totally the highly, highly educated, affluent, meritocratic liberal elites living mm-hmm. on the coast, which is their sort of, you know, their readership.
0: You, you spent a little time talking about some of the new journalism uh, uh, venues such as Vox. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. I was contacted by Vox to contribute to contribute. Articles. This was back in 2016, 2017. They were starting this this sort of column of, of divergent voices, <laughs> and I did a few pieces uh, for Vox on them mm-hmm. on, on on politics. Uh, when I look at and, and then and then it, it, it stopped. Uh, they they lost interest, I think, in that in that project because you don't see very many pieces at Vox running against that that young, affluent, liberal opinion. But one thing you do note is just how enormously successful Vox is. Uh, I should just say generally, what do you, what do you think of these new internet-based uh, works, of, works of, of journalism that are very much focused on a very narrow population, liberal population, but, but they are doing very well. Doesn't that, doesn't that seem like wait, wait, you're, you're cutting off so much of your audience here? That's not good business sense, but, but, but I guess it is, yeah?
1: So that, that's the, that was one of the great mysteries I wanted to solve with the book. I knew that um, the views being promulgated in the sort of woke moral panic do not reflect the vast majority of Americans, right? We a, a recent Pew found, you know, really put a number to this. Only six percent of Americans call themselves progressives, just six percent. But the entire Democratic establishment and all of the left-leaning and liberal mainstream media outlets are really catering to that six percent. And I wanted to understand how is that profitable? How is it not more profitable? go for 10%, you know, go for 15%, I'm not even talking about, obviously, like the idea of having something that a Republican could read and not be insulted by. But, you know, how was that profitable to where not only is the New York Times doing it and the Washington Post doing it, but the Atlantic and Vox and CNN and MSNBC and all of these outlets are now catering to the same teeny tiny little, you know, progressive, you know, university educated, highly affluent elite, right? How did that happen? And I think that the answer really lies in, in digital media. Um, you know, you really see that leaning into a small group of very, very engaged people gets you much further today online if you're somebody who, who is, for example, making money by selling data, right? Or using the data of your readers in order to sell that to advertisers, right? It, it, you make a lot more money by saying, well, all of my readers or 90% of my readers live in this zip code and they make above, you know, $300,000 a year, right? That data is much more valuable than if you're saying, well, you know, the entire state of New York is reading my publication and there's a mixed income there. Some people make $20,000 a year and some people make $500,000, right? So the, the, because engagement is the measure of success in terms of digital media, and we know that the most engaged people are always the most extreme, you've seen this real um, shift to where um, people in, are focused on the extremes on both sides, but it happens to be the extremes on the liberal side are also very affluent. And, and that's, that's really what, where, where, where it comes down to. And I, I honestly think, Mark, you're seeing this in, in terms of where the Democratic Party is putting its energies as well. You know, you keep seeing over and over a kind of woke messaging that's deeply alienating to you know, minority communities who, who by and large are very moderate, um, to, to moderate um, Democrats, even to very lefty liberal people who just don't identify with this messaging. And yet increasingly you see the democratic energy in the wealthy suburbs, right? Where they're gaining votes and losing more and more of the working class. Hmm.
0: The book is Bad News, How Woke Media Are Undermining Democracy. Atia, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so, so much for having me.
0: And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.